Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Fernando and I'm a GP in the United Kingdom. Today, we're looking at the fictitious patient generated by ChatGPT with a view to looking at the NICE guidelines from a practical perspective. Right, so let's jump into it. The patient is Sarah Davies, who's 45 and is Caucasian. Her BMI is 32, so she's obese, and her blood pressure is 153 over 91. Her medical history includes type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, asthma, obesity, and depression. She's on metformin 1 gram twice a day, glycloside 80 milligrams once a day, amlodipine 10 milligrams daily, indapamide modified release 1.5 milligrams daily, tolvastatin 20 milligrams daily, salbutamol as needed, and sertraline 50 milligrams daily. She's tolerating all the medications without any significant side effects. Her test results show an HbA1c of 8.9% or 74 millimole per mole. Her renal function is normal and her lipid profile shows a cholesterol 5.2, LDL of 3, HDL of 1.2 and triglycerides of 2.5. Her cardiovascular risk, as assessed by QRISC 3, is 18%. So what treatment recommendations would we make? Although there is a lot that we can do from a lifestyle perspective, we will be focusing on the drug treatment only. Right, so let's start with her diabetes, which is poorly controlled with an HbA1c of 8.9% or 74 millimole per mole. Sarah is on metformin 1 gram twice a day and glycoside 80 milligrams once a day, and we know she's at high risk of cardiovascular disease with a Q-risk 3 of 18%. NICE says that for step 2 treatment after metformin, if a patient is at high risk of cardiovascular disease, we should choose an SGLT2 inhibitor. But this patient has been given glycoside instead. We would like to see if there's a reason for this and whether an SGLT2 inhibitor was tried before but not tolerated. So assuming that there have been no issues, I would recommend starting an SGLT2 inhibitor. SGLT2 inhibitors are also associated with a degree of weight loss and given that Sarah is obese, this will be good for her. Glyclosite, on the other hand, is associated with weight gain, which is the last thing that Sarah needs. The question now is whether we should stop glyclosite and, if so, when. In my opinion, glyclosite should be definitely stopped and substituted by another diabetic agent, which is weight neutral, for example, a DPP-4 inhibitor. A more difficult question would be when to make this switch. Doing it straight away has got the disadvantage that, if a side effect develops, we may not know which drug is the culprit. Also, we do not know how much the HbA1c will drop with the SGLT2 inhibitor, so there could be a risk of overtreatment. Right, a balanced decision that you can make depending on your clinical judgment. I think that I would start an SGLT2 inhibitor first, so I would start her on something like dapagliflozin 5mg daily initially, and if tolerated, I may increase it to 10mg daily fairly quickly, possibly within 3 or 4 weeks, to get the maximum effect as soon as possible. Research studies have shown that the introduction of an SGLT2 inhibitor can lead to a drop in HbA1c of around 1%. Although this could vary depending on the individual patient, Sarah's HbA1c is poor at 8.9%, so even after the SGLT2 inhibitor, she's likely to require a third diabetic agent. Now it says that if dual therapy with metformin and another drug is not enough, 
we should consider either triple therapy or starting insulin because of the risk of weight gain I would try to avoid cricliside and insulin. I would probably switch Sarah to a TPP4 inhibitor as soon as she is tolerating the full dose of tapagliflozin, given that she is on glicoside 80 mg daily, that is a quarter of the maximum daily dose of glicoside. I would stop her glicoside and start her on, for example, citagliptin 25 mg daily, which is also a quarter of the maximum daily dose of 100 mg but I do not think that there's a right or wrong approach in terms of the glycoside switch. The decision about the timing is very dependent on the individual patient and your clinical judgment. Switching early has more uncertainty about treatment response, whereas switching later may mean that the patient remains on a potentially unsuitable drug for longer. We have to make sure that we inform the patient that SGLT2 inhibitors have been associated with an increased risk of TKA, toe and lower limb amputations and furnace gangrene. So, on starting the SGLT2 inhibitor, we will educate her about DKA symptoms and when to seek advice. We will also advise her against ketogenic diets to lose weight while on an SGLT2 inhibitor, as this also increases the risk of DKA. We will improve food care and we will advise patients to seek urgent medical advice if they experience pain, erythema or swelling in the genital or perineal area, as this may precede fornius gangrene or necrotizing fasciitis. If we were managing her diabetes according to the European or American guidelines, we would be talking a lot more about GLP-1 receptor agonists, given that they're also recommended for patients with high CVD risk, and they are much better in terms of weight loss. We are following the NICE guidelines, which are more restrictive with GLP-1 receptor agonists. But we can always use our clinical judgment to deviate from the guideline if we think that a GLP-1 receptor agonist is more appropriate for a particular patient. Now that we have dealt with her diabetes, let's look at her hypertension. Unless we have specific concerns, we do not need to arrange an ambulatory blood pressure monitor or a home blood pressure monitor because NICE says that we can use clinic blood pressure measurements to monitor drug treatment for people already diagnosed with hypertension. However, NICE also says that in diabetes, we should check both the sitting and standing blood pressure because of their higher risk of postural hypertension, especially if there's autonomic neuropathy. Sarah's blood pressure is 153 over 91, and NICE says that the target blood pressure for people under the age of 80 is below 140 over 90, so her blood pressure is high. She is on amlodipine and indapamide, which is not in keeping with NICE guidance. NICE says that for people with diabetes of any age and any ethnicity and background, an ACE inhibitor or ARB should be used as first-line treatment. So I would have a look to see if an ACE inhibitor or ARB has been tried before and then stopped because of side effects, like a cough or angedema. Both of these side effects can happen with ACE inhibitors and they're normally managed by switching to an ARB. But, although much rarer, these symptoms can also be a side effect of ARBs. Assuming that there is no previous problem, I would start on an ACE inhibitor, for example, lisinopril 2.5 mg daily, monitoring her renal function and titrating up according to response. If the target blood pressure is achieved at a lower dose than the maximal dose of the ACE inhibitor, then I would recommend stopping indapamide and continue titrating up the ACE inhibitor dose 
to compensate thyroside and thyroside-like diuretics can worsen diabetes, so stopping indapamide and replacing it with a higher dose of lisinopril would be the right thing to do. Once indapamide has been stopped, if a target blood pressure is achieved before the ACE inhibitor is at the maximal dose, we could consider reducing the dose of amlodipine while we increase the ACE inhibitor further because of the benefits that ACE inhibitors have, particularly in diabetes. Now let's have a look at her hyperlipidemia. Sarah has no history of cardiovascular disease, so she is on a tovastatin 20 mg daily for primary prevention. Now it says that we should offer a tovastatin 20 mg for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease if they have a Q-risk score of 10% or more. After a tovastatin 20 mg has been started, and unlike secondary prevention, there are no specific lipid targets in primary prevention. But if we judge the person to be at higher cardiovascular risk, we will consider increasing the dose of atorvastatin in order to achieve a greater than 40% reduction in non-HDL cholesterol. This would be like we would do in secondary prevention. In Sarah's case, both her cholesterol and QRIS3 score are still high on atovastatin 20mg, so we could consider her to be at higher risk and if the 40% drop in non-HDL cholesterol has not happened, we could increase atovastatin to 40mg daily and monitor her blood tests. Let's now move on to her asthma. Sarah is on step 1 treatment, that is, on-demand salbutamol inhaler, as needed. If Sarah has infrequent symptoms, this is fine, but we should check that she has no symptoms that could indicate the need for maintenance therapy, for example, asthma-related symptoms three times a week or more, or symptoms causing waking at night. If Sarah is using salbutamol inhaler more than three times a week, she may need preventative medication. In that case, we should offer a low dose of an inhaled corticosteroid, for example, standard beclomethasone, 100 micrograms, one or two inhalations twice a day. The next issue is Sarah's depression, for which she takes sertraline 50mg daily. We don't know how long she has been taking them for, but NICE recommends that SSRIs are taken for at least 6 months and then for some time after symptoms remit. So we should assess how long she's been on it and if she wishes to continue treatment or whether the time has come to consider stopping after a gradual reduction of the dose. It is worthwhile mentioning that the BNF says that SSRIs should be prescribed with caution in diabetes because SSRIs can affect diabetic control. We are advised to monitor blood glucose when starting or stopping an SSRI. Finally, let's have a look at her obesity. A BMI is 32. Apart from the obvious dietary and lifestyle changes, NICE recommends a number of pharmacological treatments for obesity, such as Orlistat, Liraglutide and Semaglutide. They all have different BMI thresholds, and I would advise that you look at the different criteria before considering them. Except Orlistat, Liraglutide and Semaglutide can only be given for obesity by a secondary care service. However, as discussed earlier and based on our clinical judgment, we could deviate from the NICE guideline and give a GLP-1 receptor agonist for her diabetes instead of the SGLT2 inhibitor. We have come to the end of this episode. Remember that this is not medical advice and it is only my summary and my interpretation of the guidelines. You must always use your clinical judgment. Thank you for listening and goodbye.